Hello, and welcome to The Scope. Our student-run and recorded podcast is put on by the Student Collaborative on Health Policy, a student group that works with the Duke Margolis Center on all health policy-related matters. I'm Sophie, a recent Duke alumni and incoming research analyst with United Health Group. And I'm joined by my partner today, Angela, a freshman pursuing Program 2, an individualized degree program, on psychiatric disability and policy. For today's episode, we will begin diving deep into the impact of policy on children's early development and health. The Scope Podcast, episode 14, the first of three episodes on health policy and early childhood development. While investigating the many hard-hitting topics in the health and policy landscape today, I was struck by how often childhood experience or the events that happen during early childhood is commonly cited as a factor contributing to many future health problems. In fact, childhood experience is considered a contributing factor to everything from the increasing prevalence of mental health disorders to the uptick of non-infectious chronic conditions such as asthma and diabetes. So it goes without saying that it is essential to explore policies that affect early childhood development. But what is the state of child-related health policies all the trends that we've seen over the years and how do we evaluate the impact of interventions, regulations and policies? Before diving into our investigation, there are three major trends to keep in mind about the state of children's health in America. Firstly, infant and maternal mortality rates in the US today are improving, but they are still higher when compared to other well-off developed countries. Added to this is the fact that these rates are especially steep for people of color. Secondly, the percentage of children with insurance is higher now than it has ever been, more than 90% of children as of 2000. And thirdly, infectious diseases like meningitis and diphtheria have been practically eliminated through effective national policy involving, among others, strict and clear guidelines improving sanitation and ensuring efficient distribution of vaccines. However, it has also been observed that the bulk of health problems besieging young children today stem from social and community influences. In this regard, some commentators have criticized the United States government for not implementing more preventative measures, suggesting instead that they have relied on a band-aid approach where the government only steps in after acute health risks have been identified. This is very different from many other developed countries where the government is more directly involved with promoting children's health, preventing the onset of severe health conditions Many experts have also noted that U.S. policy for child health care is much more fragmented, with responsibility often divided between federal and state levels of government. So, has government action to improve children's health fallen short? <laughs> That's a loaded question. But then again, health care is always a hot-button issue. We'll think through these trends when we evaluate policies that impact children's health and development in our next episode. It might be the case that more children today have access to health care insurance than they had before. But how does this translate into the quality of health care they receive? Stay tuned. We'll explore specific policies in our next episode. For right now, though, let's welcome Dr. Thomas F. Boat and have him weigh in on our narrative so far. Dr. Boat is a children's lung doctor at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center where he specializes in cystic fibrosis and the psychosocial dimensions of family life for children diagnosed with complex chronic conditions. He formerly served as chair of pediatrics and as research foundation director for the center from 1993 to 2007. Among other things, Dr. Boat has served as the president of the American Board of Pediatrics, the Society for Pediatric Research and the American Pediatric Society and also as the chair of the Department of Pediatrics at the University of North Carolina. In all these positions, he has focused and advocated for the role of family in pediatric medicine and its importance in fostering health and wellness. So without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Boat. Dr. Boat, thank you so much for making the time to speak with us today. You know, what you, you know, have your hands around right now is a really, really important issue. You know, and so thank you for addressing it, number one, and hopefully being able to reach an audience that can respond in some ways. 
Um, that'd be very ideal. We'll see. We're optimistic. So, Dr. Boat, from your point of view, what would you say has been some of the most impactful discoveries that science has made about early childhood development within the last 20 to 30 years? I think that key observations over the last several decades have led us to understand that the first three years or the first five years of brain development are particularly important. And we know that from doing outcome studies of kids, but we also know that from brain imaging studies that look at not only structure or structural development, but functional development. So first three years are particularly critical and it's during this time that development can be accelerated or retarded. And both of those have lifetime consequences for that individual. It can be accelerated by being in a nurturing and a stimulating environment, or it can be retarded through neglect or through any one of a large number of adverse experiences during that period of time. Along with that, we've also discovered that parenting skills and knowledge and their availability to the child are key determinants of the children's developmental outcomes. There are a number of evidence-based programs now that are designed to enhance parenting effectiveness and have been able to do so in research contexts. Triple P, the incredible years or home visiting programs all have acquired evidence now for being effective in being able to do this. The next steps though, are probably to learn how to scale these up in such a way that affordably we can, in fact, not just change individual outcomes, but outcomes for children across communities or across states or across our entire nation. And uh, this is harder to do. You know, the approach to this is called implementation science, and it really does need to be funded because we don't yet know the best way to take things uh, from uh, small-scale studies to broad impl uh, implementation. So getting population-level improvement is probably our next challenge. But I think we've begun to realize that this is an important challenge to uh, address. It's great that you mentioned evidence-based policies like the incredible years and home visiting programs, because it's nice to know we're on the right track with our research. Those are one of the things we're researching. So Angela, I guess we're on the right track for that. <laughs> I, I think that that is true. The problem is those programs, you know, have to be done by developing separate infrastructures that are costly. And I think what we need to learn to do is go where the preschool age kids are, whether it be in primary health care when they do their well child visits, and more than 90% of children repeatedly come to primary care health visits. I think that childcare preschool, you know, might be another opportunity. Schools are another opportunity, but of course, this is once the kids reach five years of age. But anyway, learning to take programs where the infrastructure already exists and where the children already are is a, another challenge that people are thinking through and hopefully working on, but we're not there yet in terms of making that or turning that into reality. So I, I just want to interject for a bit, but you said a while ago that it's difficult to scale up small studies to reach more people. So far, though, can you think of one or a few population level studies that have been successful to date? Well, I can give an example. Investigators at Frank Porter Graham School at the University of North Carolina are involved in a uh, two-state study, North and South Carolina, that is trying to implement very broadly uh, the Triple P program. This is a study that's ongoing right now, and it's probably the largest scale study I know that has tried to do what you suggest, and that is to go to a broad population level. We're working on it, but I think there's much more to learn in terms of what works not only what works, but what's affordable and what is acceptable or feasible within the populations and cultures that uh, we would like to impact. I find it interesting that you mentioned that implementation sciences is still a developing field. Um, and I was wondering what unique challenges do you think there are within the implementation sciences when it comes to child health? I, I think that there are a number of elements that 
investigators think are going to be important to be successful. I think you have to understand the people and the culture in which you're introducing interventions and understand what their needs are as well as what's acceptable to them. I think that building the infrastructure to support this long-term is, is also important. One of the things that implementation scientists seem to agree on is that uh, maybe we need to design interventions at the beginning and test them out on individuals that are implementable in the long run, rather than trying to, in fact, design studies to change kids' outcomes based on making sure we get an effect size in that study. So mm -hmm. implementation or implementability of uh, interventions is important. And then yeah. I think that people understand that it's got to be probably partnership because you know, community level partners are going to be necessary to support and sustain support for these programs over the long haul. And finally, I think they are beginning to realize that you probably are not going to implement the perfect intervention initially. So using quality improvement to learn as you go, collect data on outcomes as you go, and also on the process, just to rolling things out, and then continually improve what you're doing so that you get to an endpoint that in fact meets the needs of the population you're trying to serve. You've mentioned that a child's upbringing can affect their development. What measures can still be taken to help children who have suffered through traumatic conditions, for example, being sent to a foster home due to abusive home conditions, or children that suffer from a lack of proper nutrition in their first few years of life? I think that the impact of adverse kinds of exposures of children uh, may be lifelong, but I think that there is opportunity to blunt the effect, at least if not completely reverse the effect. But there are programs that have been developed uh, to work with children who have been neglected or have been exposed, whether it's to violence or a number of adverse kinds of conditions. And those programs, in, in fact, at a research level, seem to be effective in turning things around for children. Putting children in new environments, and I'm not saying take them out and put them in foster care because that has not turned out to be particularly helpful, but getting them into uh, out of the house and into child care or preschool programs is probably another way of doing it and putting them in a more nurturing environment. There is also, um, through home visiting, an attempt to really change the home environment. And I think that the outcomes from that kind of intervention seem to be working to a point, uh, not fully, but to a point. Uh, for example, if a mother has postpartum depression and can't get out of bed, the interaction with the child is going to uh, not be as full and complete as would be necessary for that child's development. But there are mm -hmm. programs now that put through home visiting um, visitors in the home who, in fact, can screen mothers for depression and then sending social workers or other therapists into the home to do cognitive behavioral therapy. And there is evidence that it really does change the level of depression of the mothers. Whether, in fact, that really does change the long-term outcome for the child is something that needs to be yet determined. So the answer to your question. Uh, as far as I can do it, is yes, you can improve outcomes. To what extent they can improve will depend on the context in which that child, you know, develops further. And I guess it also depends at what age the intervention is implemented. So I guess within the first three or five years, if, if this is caught earlier on, I guess... Early is be better than effective. later. Also, I'd like to make the point that promoting uh, social emotional development and behavioral development or identifying risks and preventing risks rather than problems, I think is an important strategy. But overall, we're probably not there yet. As we're talking about policy, part of policy, I think, is how you know, medical systems are organized and how payments are made. But right now, for example, in children's hospitals, the mantra still is we take care of children. We don't take care of adults. And yet, you know, mothers who are depressed come to see us. They bring their children. And I think we're beginning to understand that screening mothers for depression and actually providing interventions for mothers, therapy within that practice, one-stop shopping, is a whole lot better than trying to refer that mother to an outside psychologist. More often than not, mothers don't go. 
when they're referred. So I think that there are things that can be done in a promotional and preventive mode, but we're only getting started with thinking through how to do that, for example, in health. Yeah, I, like, I really like that point about we might have all of this data from the screenings, but what do we do about it? And that's, I guess, something that we have to look into and something we'd be interested to find more about when we interview Dr. Kelleher and Perrin. Curious Absolutely. to yep. hear what they think about that. Uh, they would be good people to uh, you know, provide their experience and opinions about that. So I like what you said about beginning to think about how to be more prevention oriented. And I'm just wondering, uh, in your practice, are there any preventative measures whether it's screening, whether it's uh, certain surveys that you use that you've found to be very helpful and effective? Yeah, the Children's Hospital in Cincinnati has a fairly extensive network of uh, primary care practices and uh, their training sites, but they're also sites where disadvantaged families tend to get their care. Um, we do maternal uh, depression screening routinely. Um, Medicaid said that they would support that and in fact encouraged uh, states to do that, but not all states you know, have taken this on or will pay for maternal depression screening. Ohio does now, that's an advantage. Uh, secondly, um, you know, there are a lot of practices that screen for adverse childhood experiences. Uh, and I think that there is some controversy about whether that's the right thing to do, but uh, there are enough children who are abused, neglected, or in adverse situations that uh, screening for those is, is really a, an important thing to do. As a part of um, practice, there's also um, surveillance you know, for social determinants of health. You know, is there enough food for families? Uh, you know, how safe is the uh, housing uh, in which people live? Uh, what is the uh, makeup, you know, of, of the family and who's taking care of the child and so on? So it's not only screening, but it's the surveillance. I think that, um, so it's maternal screening. Uh, it's also uh, looking for adverse events or screening for adverse events. But now routinely children's social emotional development is screened on a periodic basis. And when children are not developing or advancing with their social emotional development, there's an opportunity in fact to get them into specialized care and uh, family support. So yes, screening is going on. Um, are we doing it optimally? Are we using it optimally? I'm not sure yet, because if you screen, but don't have something to do about, you know, the outcomes of the screening, then it's probably a waste of time. So making sure that we have ways of supporting kids and families based on screening results is yet, I think, uh, a work in progress. Okay, so next question we had. You prioritize family wellness in your practice and you often work with children who have complex chronic conditions. Can you talk more about the role of family in helping these children work through their conditions? Specifically, what practices would you recommend based on your personal experience? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. I think that uh, we say over and over, and this is rather simplistic, but as the family goes, so goes the child. And this is particularly true when a child has a disability. Um, I just point out that the best estimate is that 5% of all children in this country have a disabling uh, health condition and or a life-threatening health condition that puts them in this category. So it's a big number and that number has grown. And in large part, it's because children are being saved. I mean, they don't die now as often in infancy or in the toddler years, but oftentimes they have uh, residual and ongoing neurodevelopmental problems. 
as a result of being born very premature. That's 10, uh, prematurity happens for 10% of all children are being born right now. And, uh, you know, many of them uh, survive now. And the younger they are when they're born, uh, the more problems they have, but uh, behavioral problems, neurodevelopmental problems, other health problems are really very common in this population. But this is a, a, a big contribution as an example to the growing number of kids who have disabilities. Uh, for those families that qualify for supplementary security income uh, from the uh, social security program, uh, the children have to qualify as being disabled and a half of them or almost a half of them have chronic mental problems. So there has been rapid growth in the number of kids who have disabling behavioral health problems uh, in addition. Now, getting back to your uh, question, um, I work with families when a child is diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, which is a life-threatening uh, chronic lung and gastrointestinal uh, problem. 50% of well, these children, I, I should go back and say, uh, the children are by and large diagnosed by newborn screening. And when parents find out that their perfectly healthy looking child has a life-threatening condition, uh, it triggers major emotional reactions. So in the first three years after a newborn diagnosis, upwards of 50% of mothers and almost as many fathers have clinical depression and anxiety. And again, when they have those kinds of problems, they are not going to be uh, able to spend the time and energy that they otherwise would. Uh, you know, just getting daily tasks done, number one, or making sure that the child is cared for in the best possible way. So uh, I think that understanding that the anxiety of a chronic disease is intrusive, and it's intrusive in terms of parental mental health, it's intrusive in terms of sibling outcomes, it's intrusive in terms of how families sleep, how able they are to prepare healthy foods, how much they exercise, um, it really does determine the level of stress and what we found is a need for things that parents can do on a minute to minute or hour to hour basis to uh, mitigate some of the stress that they feel. Uh, the burden of care is very high and you put that on top of the fact that mother may have to leave the workforce, that income for the family goes down, uh, that they're more isolated socially than they were before. All of those things are adverse uh, kinds of influences on family outcome. So we have begun to understand what the needs of families who have a child with cystic fibrosis are and begin to embed in the cystic fibrosis care model uh, an open dialogue with families about how stressed they are, you know, uh, about uh, coming forward to say, you know, I think I'm depressed. I'm really anxious all the time. You know, I've had to use pills. Uh, some of these families, in fact, become substance users as a way to deal with their chronic anxiety. So open the door to um, these families by saying, you know, it's okay. We know that these kinds of things are part of dealing with a child who has chronic disease or, you know, a serious chronic disease. And then secondly, developing programs like um, we're working on developing uh, virtual group uh, sleep enhancement programs. We're working on introducing um, what we call um, mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapy for families uh, to use. Uh, we are um, beginning to talk with them about uh, the perniciousness of prepared foods and high carbohydrate containing foods that seem to be quick and cheap for them. But we're also looking at things like food scarcity and the National Cystic Fibrosis Foundation found that uh, almost a third of families of kids with cystic fibrosis are experiencing food scarcity, something that 
nobody thought was really possible, but it's a reality. So anyway, the program that we're working on is to understand what family needs are and then understanding in the chronic care model, how we can better support families to achieve a level of wellness and some joy in life. that will allow them to uh, you know, see life with their child as being you know, a challenge that they can deal with rather than something that's overwhelming. I find it interesting that you mentioned that parents tend to have higher rates of depression and anxiety in the earlier years of their child's diagnosis. Do you generally see that this anxiety and depression peters off over time as parents adjust to the needs of their child's condition, or do you see them continue to last onwards? So I have two responses. One is that the announcement that their child has a life-threatening disease in the first month of life is a PTSD experience for many families. So that is a major trigger. Um, I think that we also know that depression early in life is a risk factor for lifelong depression. So a number of these families or a number of parents will grapple with you know, depressive episodes later on. Uh, being attuned to that uh, at the family level and the physician or the caregiver level, uh, health profession caregiver level is really important. And embedding uh, behavioral health into the care model has become routine now, but very, very important. And we are screening all of these parents now uh, several times a year for depression and anxiety uh, as, and we're doing that for kids also, but you know, figuring out family needs uh, by screening is, is important. And what kind of obstacles are there to doing this kind of work? One of the obstacles to doing this work is that again, you know, um, hospitals uh, that cater to children or see only children often say, uh, you know, we really don't want to get into caring for adults. So we don't want to screen adults also. So even getting health system permission to do this work has not always been easy. Secondly, doing this work uh, is not part of the payment model by most payers. So, you know, a policy issue really is how do we get not only health systems, but payers to understand that, uh, as we say, um, no health without mental health. So if you don't take care of this, there are going to be more problems down the line that need to be dealt with. It's not good for families, but it's not good for medical systems. It's not good for payers. But recognition of this is not uh, very common yet. So I just had a question about that. You said a while ago that right now we may have screening tools or we may have similar preventative tools, but the follow through for that may still be something to work on. So in these cases, in the chronic uh, care model, when you screen for maternal depression, how likely are they to actually access the resources that you'd recommend? These families are all burdened by the care and their you know, tasks of daily life. And we have found that if we say to them, you need to go see a psychologist across town, you know, or 20 minutes away or something, often they don't do it. So embedding, and this is what we do in the CF program, psychologists and uh, social workers with therapy backgrounds and training in the program and offering that on the spot. Again, one-stop shopping is something that is, has enhanced follow-through for parents. One of the things we found about care in the COVID pandemic is that parents really like the idea of having their therapist available, like on a weekly basis by Zoom or even by telephone. So that, that has been one of the positive outcomes of telehealth and telecommunication with families, that families are engaging in working on their mental health problems more readily now than they were before the COVID pandemic. So I think we've learned some things about how to do this in the future. So just to clarify, but in the behavioral integration model, you're saying that it's most effective to have services all located in one 
area to make it easier for patients to access the services they need? So the idea of integrated care, that is uh, behavioral health, physical health, uh, has been around for a while. And actually adult systems have promoted that approach first. But in most cases, it's co-location of those people, which is probably an advantage. I think what we're working on though, and I think is an even better approach, is to have behavioral health people as partners in the team so that everybody is working on a health promotion, health provision, or healthcare provision concept that is fully integrated rather than you know, uh, linked by geography. Especially with telemedicine now on the rise, that's definitely very doable. It is. And uh, fortunately, I think we've learned some things. Now, taking care of children with cystic fibrosis you know, if we can't listen to their lungs or do a pulmonary function on them, has become rather problematic. So there are certain things that we can't do as well, but behavioral care can be done very well and probably more often, more frequently uh, by telephone. Making sure that that gets paid for in the future is going to be an important policy. So shifting our focus a little bit, uh, I have another question for you. We talked about three major trends that we traced along our episode characterizing the current state of children's health in America. To rehash, the first one was that infant and maternal mortality rates in the US today are improving, but they are still higher when compared to well-off developed countries. Our second one was that the percentage of children with insurance is higher now than it has ever been historically in the US. And our final trend was that infectious diseases have been practically eliminated through effective national policies, such as strict and clear guidelines, improving sanitation and ensuring effective distribution of vaccines. Do you personally identify with the trends mentioned above? And I'm also curious to hear what other major trends, whether positive or negative, that you have seen in child healthcare today. So you mentioned three trends that are clearly reality. They have been beneficial, no doubt about that. On the other hand, these trends probably don't bring much to the table in terms of addressing the new morbidities in medicine and especially in pediatrics. And those have to do, I think, with social emotional development and behavioral health of children and chronic disease. Uh, So what I would say is the major trends we're facing now uh, are really the growth of chronic diseases and how best to support kids to become adults with chronic disease that they can manage by themselves and uh, that will allow them to be self-sufficient. So, I mean, one of the things we're working on is making sure that children with chronic disease succeed in school, because if they don't succeed in school, they don't graduate from high school or get advanced education or whatever, it's unlikely they're going to be employed and self-sufficient as adults. We need to make that a part of our healthcare imperative. So making sure that uh, children are advantaged uh, by succeeding in school or engaging school, making sure they get to school is an important part. So that's just an example of approaching chronic disease in a way that hopefully we will advantage lifelong health for these people. A second major trend, though, is the result of increasing economic disparities and increasing poverty in our country. And, you know, there is no doubt about it that poverty impacts every aspect of child and family health and is a major hurdle in terms of achieving a high level of uh, health and wellness. Now, we're, I think, beginning to understand that the social determinants of health are probably as important as some of the physical determinants or the actual problems that kids have. And I think that making sure that in like a pediatric practice, we understand what the social determinants are for each individual child and family is an important thing. I think people are beginning to link primary care to ways of supporting families uh, with better housing and with better uh, food supply, for example. I think all of those things are really important. And then the, the other trend I just want to emphasize is that more and more children are being diagnosed with mental health disorders. More depression, probably in the last 10 years, 60% more depression in children being diagnosed. I think all of us understand that preteens and teens and young adults, you know, are in the midst of an epidemic of anxiety disorders, or at least perception of anxiety disorders. Uh, Right now, my grandchildren tell me about all their friends, you know, who are on anti-anxiety medications in school right now. So, you know, that's a reality, but there's more 
autism spectrum disorder, more ADHD. But to what extent could we say that that was more of an ascertainment issue, though? We used to think it was an ascertainment issue, you know, that there were kids out there who just weren't being diagnosed. But I think most of the data now would say that whether it's because of environmental exposures or other contextual circumstances, maybe a lot of it having to do with prenatal health, you know, of mothers, which is an important thing, I think, uh, to emphasize that there is more of this kind of mental health problem. And then, you know, uh, opioid use is probably, or certain kinds of, uh, kinds of opioids are being used more frequently by children. But the vaping uh, prevalence now is really worrisome. I'm seeing kids who have major injury to their lung because of vaping, probably of things that aren't very well controlled and the content of which nobody knows. You know, I, I think that one of the things that we have to recognize is that the mental health side of health is probably our new frontier. And unless we deal with it more effectively than we have in the past, and that means everybody in health understands that mental health is part of their purview. This is just not something that the psychiatrists or the psychologists deal with. We're not, yeah. in fact, going to yeah. be able to help children grow up to be behaviorally more healthy or deal with problems early and make sure that kids get back on track when they have problems. So anyway, those are the major trends I see. The ones that you talk about are history. I think we have to focus on what the current problems are. And I've mentioned several that I think are at the top of the list. I was curious, since we've seen a history of a lot of stigmatization of mental health illnesses or disorders, and especially some people within the psychiatric field have commented that they felt sort of discrimination as compared to their other medical colleagues. Do you feel like currently healthcare providers are open to the idea of expanding their practice to embody these new elements of care? It's a good question. Not everybody is, but I think increasing numbers of physicians and certainly nurses and social workers and psychologists understand that this is probably our biggest challenge right now in healthcare and that we've got to address it. So I think that, you know, making healthcare in the mental health area, the purview of psychiatrists had a stigmatizing dimension. You have a different kind of problem. And that is different in saying to families when they first come into the practice, we want to make sure you're as healthy as possible. And that means we're going to work with you on all dimensions of health. If people are not segregated in how they're dealt with, I think that stigmatization becomes less of a uh, barrier. So I know that health delivery has changed a lot over the years. And now there is a shift, there is a push to strive for more team-based efforts when caring for patients. And I'm just wondering what your experience has been with this kind of change, let's say from a more individual-focused practice to a more team-based model of caring for patients. No doubt. And I can speak for uh, pediatric medicine. It is evolving and evolving fairly rapidly. There is general recognition on the part of the American Academy of Pediatrics, the other academic societies, the American Board of Pediatrics, that behavioral dimensions of medicine are important. And there are going to be expectations for training in this area, and there are going to be expectations for meeting family needs in this area. One of the most popular CME courses now for pediatricians is behavioral health-oriented um, continuing medical education, learning how to diagnose, learning how to treat not only ADHD and so on, but uh, anxiety and at least less serious depression, that sort of thing. So anyway, uh, we're evolving. And yes, practice is very different now than it was in actually the late 1960s and 70s when I first started taking care of children with serious pulmonary problems. So talking about evolution and changes, that brings us to our next question. What innovations in the field of diagnostics and therapy have excited you, both in relation to children who suffer from chronic health conditions and in relation to children's health and development in general? Genetic testing and understanding the genetics of many of the conditions that children have 
has opened doors that we didn't have 20 or 30 years ago. I think that many diseases now can be diagnosed very precisely with genetic testing. And there is a promise of being able to intervene in abnormal molecular pathways through genetic manipulation. That probably is, is one of the exciting parts about medicine right now. And we're really only getting our feet wet in this area. But let me say that I think we need to understand another thing, and that is the biology and the genetics of susceptibility. So I haven't talked about that. I've talked about environmental influences, but there are individual differences and in genetic susceptibility to certain conditions or to depression or anxiety or whatever is real. And I think that understanding not only the DNA structure, but how DNA can be modified by experiences is going to be important and probably provide insights into who is going to be vulnerable and allow medical practice, in fact, to be a step ahead of the curve in terms of greater surveillance for those who are most susceptible or more susceptible. I'm wondering, but uh, on the topic of genetic testing, how successfully has this um, been integrated into practice right now in terms of helping, for example, um, screen for potential abnormal genes and, as you said, helping uh, providers, practitioners be one step ahead in the game of diagnosing um, sure. potential problems that might come up. So genetic testing has greatly influenced newborn diagnosis, depending on the state in which you live. But there are dozens and dozens of conditions that are now routinely tested for at the newborn period. And uh, a lot of that is done, or at least the confirming tests are often genetic tests that are very precise. Uh, for cystic fibrosis, the initial screen is just a biological screen for a certain molecule, but you know it's confirmed by doing genetic testing. And so you can get a very precise diagnosis now, there are about 7,000 rare diseases. Most of them are you know, genetic in some way or another. Most of them appear in pediatrics, but for a number of hundred of these, we can make diagnoses and make them earlier. And in some cases, you know, there are treatments that can be applied like phenylketonuria, where you change the diet, where in fact, the outcomes can be changed in a major way. Even with cystic fibrosis now, knowing that a child has that genetic diagnosis and what the actual genetic variation is in that child, there are five or six different categories of variations and there are different medicines that now can enhance the ability of the abnormal protein to work in the, in, in the favor of the child rather than to get in the way of lung and, and gastrointestinal tract function. So anyway, you know, I think we've come a long way. There are a lot of rare diseases now that for which we really don't know what to do if they're diagnosed genetically, but I think that that will come with further uh, research. Looping back to the previous conversation we had about family wellness, I was wondering how early genetic screening actually affects family wellness when they find out the diagnosis a little earlier in the process of having a child. It does. Uh, you're very perceptive. Early diagnosis allows us to intervene early with our therapies. At the same time, 40 years ago, when I was taking care of families, the kids had CF, usually the kids were diagnosed at a half year of age, sometimes a year, two, three, or even five years of age. And they had been to multiple doctors. They knew something was wrong with their child. And when a diagnosis was made, the family said, oh, thank goodness, we now know what the problem is. At least we can begin to deal with the problem. Now we are calling families out of the blue in the first couple of weeks of life and say, sorry to tell you, but your child is screened positively and we have to do the definitive test for cystic fibrosis. As I said before, this comes as a shock to a lot of families. And I think the emotional fallout is as great or maybe greater with newborn screening than it was when families came slowly to the realization that their child had a problem and were grateful to know what it was. That's really interesting. With new technology, there are both advantages yeah. and disadvantages. There are unintended consequences for most every change that comes along. 
there is one other question that we had. Have there been innovations in the policy and entrepreneurial field surrounding child health or child policy that have excited you? I think all of us were very excited when, as a part of the ACA, the MAVI program was instituted, which in fact set aside half a billion dollars for prevention through home visitation of children. That was one of the first interventions uh, or, or policy changes that really focused on enhancing child development. Now, the ACA has been under fire and not a lot has happened, although with the new administration, we'll see what happens. It was a foot in the door, but a half a billion dollars was not enough money to really change things at a population level. It helped existing home visitation programs, but even probably the, the best study of them, uh, the nurse home visitation program probably only touches 30,000 or 40,000 families in this country right now a drop in the bucket to what's needed. So anyway, addressing prevention, I think, is really an important part of what we need to do policy-wise. And as I say, that was a step in the direction five-plus years ago, and it's being studied in terms of outcomes, but I think there needs to be more thinking policy-wise along those lines. What can we do to enhance promotion of health and prevention of risks for health? Let me say that addressing poverty, I have strong feelings that child support payments are important. And it's my opinion that they should not be tied to income generation or to tax credits. The most needy children and families are not going to be those who can file an income tax return. And I know that there are people in this country, legislators included, who say, well, we just don't want to give money to people and give them an excuse not to work. But there have been studies in other countries where there's automatic child support payments that have shown that, in fact, doing that increases employment of parents. I think that it's likely that that would be the case in this country. Just think about an 18 or 19-year-old first-time mother who doesn't have a husband and doesn't have a supportive family and has got postpartum depression. Is she going to be able to go out and get a job? No but her child is probably highest on the list of need for support. And if in fact that family could get enough child support to in fact get the child into childcare and or get a babysitter to come in, mother would be more likely, I think, to uh, seek employment and uh, move in that direction. So what I would say is child support payments, yes, I think they're really important. I like to see them be universal, at least for families with economic needs. I would say that another thing that excited me, but seems to have sort of dwindled in terms of the conversation, is universal access to preschool for kids. And I know that was a big issue five years ago. I haven't heard as much about it now. I hope that's resurrected because that option, I think, is very important for children who are in environments that are not most conducive to their healthy development. So considering how personal parenting and childcare is to so many people, how can policy effectively aid a family or a community without intruding into their personal space? And I guess in the context of what you said, there is this push and pull between parenting as a, as a personal, very personal issue and the role of the government in being able to step in um, and help these families care for their children. So let me say that the outcome of today's children is going to impact everybody in this country. You know, if there is more need for special education, if there's more need for social services, if there's more need to put money into juvenile justice, all of those are going to have impact tax-wise, for example, on everybody in this country. They're also going to have an impact in terms of, in some cases, safety of people. So what I would say, and I know that this is a political issue right now, and that I don't uh, reflect or echo the feelings of a lot of our people in this country right now. I have friends who, uh, in fact, I have a son-in-law, you know, with whom I have this argument. But I think that when there are 330 million people in one country, there is not any one reaction here that's not going to have, you know, an equal and opposite reaction someplace else. 
in the country. So we are not isolated. We are not independent. And I think the sooner people come to a realization that you can be freed up, in fact, at a higher level, if everybody cooperates on really important issues. So my recommendation for the United States would be to say, we are going to take the next 10 years and designate it as the decade of the child. And we are going to make sure that every child, to the extent possible, has every advantage to grow up in a healthy way, to do well in school, to join the workforce, to be an economic contributor in this country, to not, in fact, you know, up the cost of all of the services that go into kids who don't do well. If we could do that, I think people would begin to realize that, hey, this is good for me too. What I see is um, a gift, you know, from the rugged individualism that founded this country. But I think that things uh, are different now. When we have as many people living together in our country as we do right now, people have to begin to understand that cooperation rather than individual freedoms probably need to be the trump card. And I guess take some inspiration from other countries. Uh, Absolutely. I've done the same. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. This is great. This is great. So exciting. Okay, well, you've been terrific to work with. Thank you for doing this. All right, and that's a wrap. This episode was written and produced by myself and Angela. A big thank you to Charlotte and Josie, our editors-in-chief, and to the rest of the Scope team. And of course, thank you to our listeners. If you have any questions about this episode or any ideas for future podcasts, please message us on Twitter at DukeScope. That's S-C-O-H-P. Thank you again for listening today, and be sure to tune in to part two of this episode on health policy and early childhood development, where we'll look at specific policies, what's worked and what hasn't. Stay safe, everyone. Bye.